The year was 1944. World War II was still raging on. In the Pacific, the United States was hopping from island to island, engaging in brutal battles with the entrenched Japanese. In the east, the Soviets were driving the Germans back into Eastern Europe after the failed German invasion. In the south, North Africa and half of Italy were firmly in the hands of the Allies, and a battle was raging over the control of Rome. But Western Europe had remained under Nazi control since 1940, and in those intervening years, the Germans had built up formidable defenses. If the Allies wanted to gain a foothold on the European mainland, they are going to have to hit the Germans with everything they had. And in June of that year, that's exactly what they did. In this week's episode of HPH, we're telling you the story of an event that you've probably heard of, but you don't know the entire incredible story behind. So, grab your drinks, settle in, and enjoy this week's episode of 100 Proof History, titled D-Day, A Day at the Beach. This is 100 Proof History. We're drinking whiskey and talking history. So, grab a drink, sit back, relax, and enjoy a few laughs as the guys talk about all the horrible things people do to each other. Here are your hosts, Chris and Greg. Sup, all you jive turkeys, turkeyettes. Mm-hmm. Greg here, joined as always by my co-host, my lesser host, Christopher. I'll take it. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Doing great. I'm so excited to tell the story of D-Day and American heroism and, you know, just just badassery because, you know, I'm just incredibly depressed and I need something to lift me up. Just anything would be great. You know, just not feel horribly ashamed of my country right now. Just, you know, anything. <laughs> just please, guys. Please. Right, right. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's a great story, man. It really is. It's one of those stories that's just, it's very entertaining, you know, and you hate to say that because of the implication there's so much just death and destruction, but it's, you know, it's like saving Private Ryan. It's just, Uh I don't know. It's interesting to think about, okay? It it really is, and uh, I'm excited to tell you guys about it. I'm very stoked that we've reached this part of World War II because this is a cool battle, and there's a lot of things you probably don't know or have never heard about this battle that we have uh, learned and we're going to pass on to you because that's what we do we pass things on to people stories <sighs> hiv <clears throat> um yeah but like you were saying a lot of brave guys <laughs> brave a lot of brave guys and you know like i see them and i'm like man that that is the model of man you know that's i feel like what a lot of people strive to be you mm-hmm. know those heroes like I want to be the type of guy to where you know, men want me and women want to be me. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Know exactly what you mean. Yes. Uh, I've had those thoughts myself. Yes. That's what that's what these guys are. So Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, our source for this episode is D-Day, June 6, 1944, The Climactic Battle of World War II by Stephen Ambrose. It's a very good book. Highly recommend. There's a lot of stuff in it um, that we're not going to get into today specifically. And, you know, we've talked about this before with war books, how they tend to be either all tactical or all personal, and you kind of have to combine them. I feel like in 
this book and most of Ambrose's books about World War II, he does a really good job of combining the two inside the story where it's, here's what's happening and here's what this guy thought about it. And it was, it's a really good read and really cool book. Yeah, and if you don't want to read it, but you're still interested in it, I don't know. Maybe you need a product like Audible. And on our website, if you go to 100proofhistory.com slash audible, you get a free month. I've said this shit before. You get a fucking straight up free book. I bet this one's 30 something hours. Yeah. You get it. You can download it, immediately cancel the membership to where you get that month free, and you get to keep the book, listen to the whole fucking thing. Why not? It helps this podcast, and you want to help the podcast, don't you? Oh, you don't. <laughs> well, fuck you. <laughs> no, because this is a 800-page book before you even get to the notes. So, yeah, if you're not somebody that can sit down and read for just days on end, maybe subscribe to the Audible, 100proofhistory.com slash Audible, and listen to it instead. Take the whole freaking month. Take the rest of your life. Like Greg says, you get it forever. Yeah, take the rest of your life. And if not enough of you go to the link, I'm going to take my life. Oh, my so, God. There. No pressure. No, no, I won't. I won't. <laughs> not for that, anyway. For every day we don't get a Audible subscriber, we're going to cut off one of Wolf Dick's toes. For every day we don't get an Audible subscriber, I'm going to end my life. <laughs> <laughs> See how long we can keep this streak going. Keep it going, man. (laughs) No, suicide is no joke. I just mean end it socially. We'll get on social media and, you know, profess Nazi ideals or something (laughs) like that. (laughs) In that kind of... In my social life. Yeah, get canceled. I will be rightly ostracized. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it makes sense. Dare me to, Chris. Dare me to. No, we don't want that to happen. We want people to join up with the Audible. So please, save Greg's social life by joining Audible at hunterproofhistory.com slash Audible. And one last thing before we begin the story. Also, we have a Patreon, where for just $3 a month, you get access to old episodes, bonus content, early releases, a new episode. We have like 100 things on there. I think right now it's 110 very nice, round, even number of things that you will not find anywhere else. No one else has access to. And it's just $3 a month for that bonus content, man. Yeah, nobody else has access to it. And if I find out one of you is pirating it and giving it to your friend for free, I will fucking kill you. <laughs> I will fucking kill you. <laughs> On social media. Yes, yes. I will kill your social media accounts. Yeah, not... Life. Again, murder is not something to be joked about, okay? Right, yeah. And now for the next one hour, we will be talking about government-sanctioned murders and joking about them. So, enjoy. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. That is funny. In 1940, Hitler began his war against England and France using the lightning-quick Blitzkrieg tactics, and in doing so, drove the Brits off of mainland Europe, overthrew the French government, and took control of pretty much all of Western Europe. Everything was pretty great for them until Hitler decided to attack the Soviet Union. The Nazi offensive, known as Operation Barbarossa, failed miserably. And then they got their Nazi teeth kicked in at Stalingrad. Suddenly, the war had shifted from offensive to defensive as the Soviets began a slow advance towards Germany. 
Meanwhile, in the West, the Germans still controlled every bit of the coast in France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Denmark, and Norway. Now, this all sounds impressive, but the reality of the situation was that it was too much to defend. Losses in the East forced the Germans to transfer their best soldiers from France to fight the Soviets. To replace them, Germany conscripted boys and old men and relied on units known as Ost Divisions, which were made up of captured Polish and Russian soldiers who agreed to fight for Germany in exchange for citizenship, but they still had to be watched over by a German officer who would shoot them if they defected. And this is Ost, as in the German word for East, hence Polish and Russian soldiers. Mm-hmm. For anybody curious, like, what is he saying? How do you spell that? O-S-T. Somebody just furiously scribbling that on their McMuffin wrapper as they're driving to work. Oh, got it. Got it. Finally, I have something to talk about to Becky, an accountant. She's not even going to believe this shit. Oh, you haven't known this your whole life just like me? What a fucking <laughs> idiot. <laughs> Bethany, you're such a dumb bitch. <laughs> How is this guy not fired? <laughs> He's very sexist. He ends up in HR that same day and like, Steve, listen, we manufacture the little caps that go on pins. No one cares how the Wehrmacht could have won the war. It doesn't fucking matter to us. Will you please drop it? Every day with this shit. You're a fucking dumb bitch too, Ethel. Get fucked. <laughs> and that's how Steve lost his job. Steve got canceled. And unfortunately had to cancel the Patreon subscription because he couldn't afford $3 a month. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. Classic Steve, though. In addition to the less than stellar soldiers defending the coast, the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, and the German Navy, the Kriegsmarine, have been effectively wiped out as fighting forces. That meant that Hitler had a 3,200-mile-long Atlantic coast to defend and almost no way of knowing where the Allies would actually attack. His best guess, and the most logical choice, was Pas du Calais, which sits on the coast near the Belgian border. This spot is the narrowest part of the English Channel and was the most direct route from London towards Berlin. And it was also the spot Hitler chose to defend with the most fortifications and tanks. And if it wasn't the Allies' chosen target, he was going to try and force their hand by housing the V-1 and V-2 rockets in that area. He believed that these vengeance weapons, as they were called, were so dangerous that the Allies would be forced to take them out. To dinner. And apologize for their transgression. (laughs) I'm sorry, Hitler. We were just posturing. You may have all of the land. Yes. Now, what this doesn't mention is the VO-1 rocket, which would perfectly curl your hair using the hot oil that landed all over you. What? You never heard of VO-1 hot oil? You never watched Price is Right as a kid? (laughs) Um, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, it was for, like, styling your hair. It was what white people use instead of jerry curl. Oh. Yeah. I'm sure all the 11-year-olds will really resonate with that joke. Yeah, that worked about as well as Hitler's V1s and V2 rockets. Am I right, history nerds? Right, guys? Guys? They're pretty devastating. Well. When they hit. Yeah, but... Come on. Let's minimize the Nazi contribution to the war, Greg. Let's let's get this. Dude, this is a history podcast. (laughs) You can't speak in terms of good and evil. 
you fucking do all the time. You're like, oh, the Nazis were pretty good. I'm just saying it, it, what they did. At what they did. Okay, you know, there are other things. There are things they didn't do. V1 and the V2 were a, a Werner von Braun special. They fuck shit up when they hit. Yeah. What did he say? Something along the lines of he didn't care where they landed. He was just happy they took off or something like that. You know, he just wanted to see them work. Direct quote, end quote from Werner von Braun. Speaking of work, mm-hmm. I finally got my dream job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fluffer on a porn set. Oh, sweet. Always wanted, since I was a kid, really. <laughs> I was under my uncle's tutelage, we'll say. Right, just going on those sets and making sure the pillows on the bed are nice and fluffy uh-huh. for the actors. Yep. <laughs> well, congratulations, man. That's that's good news. Tease up the rug, you know, so it doesn't look walked all over. <laughs> Fluffing everything. Yeah, you know, just making sure everything looks perfect for the shot. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's all they can ask of you. Yeah, when, when it's rolling, mm-hmm. everything is, boom, standing up, no, not all laid down flat. It's all standing at attention, so to speak, and ready to go. Well, I'm I'm glad for you that you can and get wet. that job. Yeah. What? what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, nothing. <laughs> Now, Hitler really turned his attention to the West following a defeat to the Soviets at Kursk in 1943. It was then that he decided the best way to win the war was to simply hold off the Soviets and destroy any Allied invasion of France. He figured that if he did that, the Soviets would see they couldn't rely on America or England, and they would agree to peace. Then, he could force the other Allies to agree to peace or continue his war on one less front. Of course, he didn't know that the Americans were working on a super-secret weapon that would end the war no matter what. But that is a story for another show. Did you know that the B-29 Superfortress program was more expensive than the Manhattan Project? I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Four billion to three billion. That's pretty fucking crazy. It's also crazy we had three billion to spend in 1942 or whenever they started Manhattan Project. That's a little crazy, too, because... Back then, like a million dollars meant you were set forever. Yeah. I just thought it was interesting that the B-29 Super Fortress. I also find it interesting how many people get upset about the dropping of the atomic bombs and, you know, killing of like 130,000, whatever it was. And like a month before that, we firebombed Tokyo and killed way more fucking people. And slow burning... Horrible deaths. Pretty sure. Pretty sure I heard that today on Audible, so... (laughs) (laughs) To lead his defense, Hitler tapped General Erwin Rommel, who was known as a brilliant offensive tactician, but who was fresh off of a defeat in North Africa. The Desert Fox. Yeah. I met a silver fox once. Yeah? Did I tell you that story? No, you've never told me that, no. Well, I was uh, hooking it one night. In Hollywood Hills, right? Mm-hmm. I was in my red wig, you know, the one you've seen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was telling Johns my name was Vivian Ward. Yeah, right. And uh, the Silver Fox, you know, he drives up. and He paid me to actually drive him to his hotel because he didn't know how to drive a, a stick shift. And he had gotten the car from his lawyer when they were at some party. I don't know, it was a long, boring story. but uh, <laughs> Once we got to the hotel... He ended up hiring me for the rest of the evening, you know, mm-hmm. serv- services. Right. Anyway, we uh, started a relationship, and 
then eventually his friend Jason George Costanza Alexander tried to fuck me. So can't believe I never told you that story. No, never heard that. Wait, wait, wait. Is that the guy you told me he asked you to shove a living gerbil up his butthole? No, that's Richard Gere, and you're thinking of the movie Pretty Woman. No, this oh, is a completely oh, separate. Shit. My bad. Thing. I'm sorry. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. I can see the similarities though. <laughs> yeah. I have early onset alcohol related dementia, so these things get mixed oh. up in my head a little bit. Sure. <laughs> well, Rommel went on a road trip from the North Sea to the border of France and Spain. In 1942, Hitler had ordered the construction of a massive string of fortifications along the Atlantic coast, which was to be composed of a seawall lined with barbed wire, bunkers, machine gun and artillery emplacements, beach obstacles, and underwater barriers. On his tour, Rommel found it had all been a pipe dream, and the defenses were woefully underprepared. I had a pipe dream last night. Anyway, go ahead. I'm not actually going to make that joke. When you were hooking... Hitting the rock a little hard, and you dreamed you'd married Richard Gere, but then George Costanza showed up. Jason George Costanza Alexander. So <laughs> I'm sorry. Plus, it's not either. It's not Jason Alexander or George Costanza. It's both. The guy's name was. He had two hyphenated names: hyphenated first name, hyphenated last name. <laughs> <laughs> Jason George Costanza Alexander. <laughs> yes. You've been remarried. Well, he's born Jason George. Yeah. 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 He's been married a few times. <laughs> yeah. He's a, well, he's a young Italian boy. He's actually first generation. But uh, original last name was Costanza, and then he got married to an Alexander. So Gotcha. Very interesting life old Jason George Costanza Alexander has lived. Yeah. Rommel immediately ordered the placement of over six million mines along the coast. Just wanted to find some diamonds and gold. Just digging deep. Kept hitting groundwater. He's like, this is fucking stupid. No wonder nobody digs over here. But we got a lot of dirt for sandcastles. A mining joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me add that to my mining jokes catalog. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Somewhere in western Pennsylvania is a six-year-old who's covered in coal dust, and he is fucking dying laughing right now. <laughs> But he's coughing a bunch because he's got the black lung. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he is drunk, so it's hilarious. <laughs> Rommel had additional barriers placed at various tide levels to prevent ships from landing and placed mines on top of those as well. He knew he would have no control of the air or sea, so his plan was to hold the Allies on the beach and then launch a counterattack and drive the enemy back into the ocean. The other German generals called him a darn fool and said he should focus on launching counterattacks once the Allies were inland. In the end, it mostly didn't matter because command of the German military was heavily fragmented. Rommel had no control over the Luftwaffe or Kriegsmarine in the region. He wasn't even in charge of the elite panzer divisions. They could only be committed to battle under orders from Hitler himself. On the flip side, the Allies, specifically the United States, had spent years building up equipment, supplies, and troop numbers in preparations for the attack. In 1940, the U.S. Army totaled 170,000 men. By 1943, that number had surged to 7.2 million. Oh my god, so many. Yep. 
just reproducing like crazy, man. The army guys? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now I'm picturing fucking George Marshall busting into a barracks and these dudes are just going at it. It's like, you told us we needed more troops, sir. We're doing our part. God damn it, boys. <laughs> Can't keep those boys away from that mountain. <laughs> Brokeback Mountain joke. Yep. It's like 2004. Yeah, these guys weren't born yet. You're right. <laughs> Says the guy making a fucking VO9 joke. <laughs> From Bryce's right in the <laughs> 80s. <laughs> yes, that can of tomatoes is 19 cents, Bob. Oh, fuck. We just way overbid. Way overbid. This guy's an idiot. <laughs> When the U.S. production of equipment was so massive that numerous private companies had to help carry the load and design and build vital machinery, such as a landing craft to be used in the evasion, known as the Higgins Boat, which was designed by an Irishman from New Orleans who drank a bottle of whiskey a day. Hell yeah, number one. (laughs) Number two, um, just in case y'all don't know, the Higgins Boat, that's actually the thing that you see when you're watching all these war movies, the one that it was open-topped, just carried a shitload of troops, and then the bottom would just flap down and they'd run onto the beach, in theory. Yeah, and Stephen Ambrose, the author of our main source, actually spoke with Dwight D. Eisenhower, someone we're going to talk about in a second, but major guy, pretty important dude, and he said Andrew Higgins and the Higgins boat actually won the war for the Allies. That was how important these vessels were, and it was designed by a drunk Irish guy just screaming and shouting at everybody that they're fucking shit up all day. And also, it is not true that these won the war. Uh, more important than the atomic bomb, I'm just saying. I'm, I'm wrong, but I'm just saying. I'm just throwing that out there. Well, I, I almost consider that a completely separate war. But I do feel like, and I don't know if this is the appropriate time to stop down, but uh, the American involvement in World War II, I think, is very overstated in the U.S., because of the, you know, American exceptionalism and all that. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, we did a lot of shit, but the Russians were going to fucking win that war. It was already, like, it was looking bad for Germany at this point before we, before D-Day even happened. Right. The Eastern Front was collapsing and the the attrition that was going on, Germany was doomed at this point. They had no resources. Yeah, and that was... Kind of the thing, like we said earlier, Hitler was getting at. It was like, I can't win on the East. I can just hope to stall them long enough, win in the West, and then if I win that fight, I can go to peace talks with the East and kind of like tell them, hey, there's nobody else to help you anymore. Let's just end this right now. Uh, because the Soviets were so formidable and were marching straight through Eastern Europe. Obviously at a great loss for both sides, but the Russians could bear that weight. And we haven't done an episode on them. But I don't think Stalin would have entered into peace talks at this point. No. Nah, I think was, he would just try to land grab everything that Germany had, including France. Yeah. And he was a vindictive son of a bitch. And Germany was the first one to violate their treaty. So, yeah, I can see how that would happen. Yeah. All that is to say, the Higgins boat was a very, very important vessel for the Western Front. But I think it's a bit of hyperbole to say that it won the war. Greg thinks Dwight D. Eisenhower was an idiot. That's the headline here. I think that statement was idiotic. (laughs) I'm smarter than 
Dwight D. Eisenhower ever was. That's what I'm saying. Okay, gotcha. That motherfucker never had a Patreon, did he? (laughs) (laughs) Well, unlike the Germans, who had to deal with a convoluted command structure, the Allies placed the command of the English, Canadian, and American forces under one man. We've already talked about him, but that was American General Dwight D. Eisenhower. Idiot. (laughs) But he would be given the HPH-approved badass metal moment of the week title of Supreme Commander of Operation Overlord. Yeah, he was certainly a badass. Yeah. Badass fucking idiot, though. (laughs) I don't know. Supreme Commander just feels like a Star Wars thing. Like this motherfucker's on one of those Imperial ships and his weird-looking hat disappointing the shit out of Darth Vader. (laughs) Gets force-choked for a little bit. (laughs) Oh, daddy! (laughs) Are you enjoying this? (laughs) What is that you just got on my shoes? (laughs) Stupid. By the time Eisenhower was placed in charge, the Allies had already decided they would attack the Calvados coast of Normandy near the port of Caen in France, in late spring or early summer of 1944. This port was small, could be captured quickly, and could lead to the direct capture of several airports and would allow them to threaten to capture Paris. It's a lot of capturing if you get this little little bitty city. Well, I'm on the itty-bitty city committee, and I won't <laughs> let that happen. Plus, the Allies knew that Germany was heavily defending Pas du Coulet, and they would probably think the landing at Normandy was a feint, designed to lessen the defenses in other coastal regions, and would thus be less likely to rush to defend against the invasion. Of course, secrecy and deception were key players in the lead-up to the attack. The Allies launched Operation Fortitude, which was designed to use fake radio transmissions, papier-mâché and rubber tanks, and German double agents to trick the Germans into defending other areas. As a result, stupid dumb-dumb Hitler moved 13 divisions to Norway to protect his submarine bases and added even more defenses to Pas de Coulet when spies reported that General George S. Patton was in London and was planning his invasion there. Another overrated person. Hitler? I agree. Oh, Hitler's not overrated in your eyes. Basically Hitler. (laughs) Yeah. The Allies began massing in southern England and training. They were not initially briefed on their targets, but instead were put through rigorous training at a beach designed to look like those of Normandy. Now, these exercises didn't go super smooth, and two German boats were actually able to slip into the training area and sink two ships, killing over 700 men. Other men were killed in training drills where live fire was used, and a couple more died in practice parachute drops when their chutes failed to open. You were in the military. They, did they, is live fire drills, is that still a thing where they're like fucking shooting over your head? I don't know. I was in the Air Force. <laughs> you just watch Top Gun over and over again. And they're like, this is the Navy. Like, no, shut up. Shut up. This is what we do. Fuck Tom Cruise. Hmm. If only. Yeah. <laughs> I want to get the Zeno out of his body, if you know what I'm saying. Get the Xeno out and put the Pino in. <laughs> Pino Grigio, Chris. I yes. Give him wine so that he would get drunk enough and I could put my human penis inside of him. 
You thought I was being nasty. I did. I did. Your hero is L. Ron Hubbard? Well, let me show you why they call me L. Rod Hubbard. Hello. (laughs) Well, I'm going to show you why they called me Old Mother Hubbard. (laughs) Now, why don't you put that in my cupboard? I can't. (laughs) I can't. (laughs) There's something about a bone in that story. I think she went to get her dog a bone out of the cupboard, but it was bare or something. <laughs> oh, that's how you get diseases. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you you can't go into the cupboard bare. No. You got to wrap the bone for sure. <laughs> well, if the Allies were struggling in their training, things were going just as bad for the Germans on the French coast. Rommel demanded that he be given full control of the panzer units so he could dig in along the coast and use them as artillery. He was given control of one unit, which was far from enough to defend the coastline, and basically made his plan to hold the beaches and drive the Allies into the sea an impossibility. Rather than adjust his plan or train his men to operate without tank support, Rommel had them spend 24 hours a day building beach defenses and barricades. Exactly how I played real-time strategy games, and is why I always fucking lost. I turtled up like a motherfucker. Build new troops, just a bunch of defenses, and I just got all overran by some eight-year-old Korean kid. Hell yeah! I'm glad those games don't exist anymore. I'm glad that only nerds play those anymore, Greg. It's all that ever played them. Yeah, that's true. That's fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Based on the tides and the predicted weather, Eisenhower planned D-Day to be June 5th. The attack would take place along about 50 miles of coastline, divided into five beaches. In the west, at the far left flank, the U.S. would attack Utah Beach. Further east, the U.S. would also be responsible for taking Omaha Beach. The others were Gold and Sword, which would be attacked by the English, which sandwiched around Juneau Beach, which was the responsibility of the Canadians. Now, the plan was for the invasion force to leave England late the night before. Paratroopers and glider troops would drop behind enemy lines and capture key strategic points and disable guns that would be firing upon the beaches. Then, bombers would fly over the beach, destroy defensive positions, and leave craters that could serve as foxholes for the advancing ground troops. By that time, the Navy would be arriving, and they would bombard the coast with naval guns, and the troops would take their Higgins boats ashore capture the beaches, and by the end of the day, they'd hold the beaches, the small towns behind them, and the port city of Khan. Easy peasy, suck my dick Hitler. Except none of it went according to plan. So, didn't get that sweet Hitler head like we were hoping for. A little toothbrush mustache just tickling the top of it. A little cock sweeper, as yeah. I like to call it. <laughs> Just as everyone was loading up on June 4th, Eisenhower got word from his weatherman that there were storms over the coast of France that would make aerial and naval bombardment impossible. Now, our Patreon listeners would know this, but you guys might not know that the Allies had already tried an invasion without those things at Dieppe and had gotten slaughtered, so Eisenhower decided to hold off. Across the channel, Rommel saw the weather and said, Welp! They ain't coming any time soon. Ding! German spittoon noise. Great German accent. Yeah. Yeah. 
and he left the coast to go visit his wife and daughter. Little did he know, Eisenhower had decided to delay the launch by only one day. At about 10 p.m. on June 5th, the invasion force left England. June 6th was officially D-Day. Thin-skinned, defenseless C-47 cargo planes were the first to make it across the channel. Which, when I read that, I cheered Mm -hmm. for it, you know, because I resonate with the C-47 because my dad always called me thin-skinned and defenseless, so, (laughs) you know, I've got a special place in my heart for the C-47 after reading that. Yeah. Well, as those thin-skinned C-47s crossed the channel, they entered a dense bank of clouds that caused them to become disoriented. The tight formations began to scatter, and they rose and fell to various altitudes. It's important to note that they were also under orders to operate under radio silence. Basically, they couldn't communicate with each other, so they're just fine, blind at this point. That would definitely make you disoriented. Yeah. If I don't know my orientation, does that make me disoriented? (laughs) It does. A little bit, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Again, I resonate with the (laughs) C-47. The first troops to drop into Normandy were the Pathfinders, who were supposed to use a radio device to guide the next waves to their drop zones and targets. Of the 18 Pathfinder units, only one actually landed where they were supposed to. What followed was absolute chaos. English gliders crashed into fields that were lined with long poles, known as Rommel's asparagus. They were way off target, but still some landed close to where they were supposed to be and managed to blow a few key bridges that would delay German reinforcements. Behind the gliders were the 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions of the U.S. Army. These paratroopers had been training non-stop since 1941 for this moment and were considered to be elite soldiers. Unfortunately for them, their planes were way off course and soon came under heavy fire from German anti-aircraft guns. Several were shot down out of the sky before the troops could even jump. Other pilots ignored orders to drop their paratroopers at 90 miles per hour at an altitude of 600 feet because it made them easy targets. Instead, they gave the troopers the green light to drop at speeds of 150 miles per hour at altitudes ranging from 300 to 2,000 feet. As a result, the paratroopers were literally scattered in the wind. Almost none of them dropped where they were supposed to be, and many were killed in the jump or fell right into the path of German MG-42 machine gun emplacements. Instead of spending the early hours of June 6th attacking critical positions, the U.S. paratroopers and British glider troops spent the night forming small platoons with men from various regiments that they had never met before. Maybe the best thing to come out of this cluster F was that the troops were so scattered it confused the Germans into believing that the force was larger than it was. That kept the Wehrmacht troops on the defensive and kept them from wiping out the vulnerable paratroopers. As the airborne troops fought to survive and regroup into a useful fighting force, the rest of the invasion made its way across the channel. Over the next 20 hours, over 6,000 ships, 10,000 aircraft, and 150,000 U.S., British, and Canadian troops would combine to form the largest amphibious force ever assembled in an attempt to free Europe from Hitler's grasp. D-Day was here. 
and Greg's going to tell you what happened. I don't think it's going to work out for these guys. I'm going to be honest with you. I think this shit's going to get pushed back in the ocean, and Hitler's going to win. Who can say? <laughs> right? Nerds and nerds only? <laughs> Thankfully, us regular folk are here to tell you how it ends. We bit the bullet. We went through this story for you, and we know. Well, I mean, as we read the next part of the outline, we'll know, but... I I will be as shocked as you guys as to what happens here. Unless Hitler wins, then I will not at all be shocked, because that's what <laughs> I'm expecting, is those allies are going to get pushed into the ocean, like Chris said. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. You can't just walk on a beach. Some bad things got to happen to you, so... uh but you know what? We'll get. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, you know, just play it by ear. Yeah. What are you gonna have a a candlelit dinner with the Germans? A long walk on the beach. It's so stupid. Hopeless romantics. <laughs> these Americans <laughs> and Canadians and British forces. Yes. All right. Well, let's take a break. Let's ruminate on this a little bit. You know, just let it settle in our mind, brain pans, and then we'll come back and find out what happens. On D-Day, June 6th, 1944. I'm sorry for my stupid joke 25 seconds ago. See you in a minute. (laughs) All right, welcome back from break. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I had to fight off my boarding home roommates for the last little Ritz cracker with peanut butter in it, but uh, I got it. Bleeding profusely because of all the alcohol I've been drinking, but uh, it's going to be all worth it. I'm going to get that sweet, sweet peanut butter cracker in my mouth, and Greg tells you the rest of the story. Mm. But Greg, you know what is best for washing down a hard-fought, well-earned peanut butter cracker? Water? Well, probably, but we don't have that. We don't have clean drinking water here in the boarding home. Instead, we're going to go with the old second-half seltzer. Oh. Second-half seltzer. Second-half seltzer. Second-half seltzer! All right. Three, two, one. Greg already... Popped his kind of. No, I didn't. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. <laughs> Stupid fuck. <laughs> I'll wash that cracker right down. That's also what my roommate said to me when he ambushed me in the shower the other day, but <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> Greg, you ready to tell these people what happened on D Day? <laughs> yes. The aerial bombardment of Normandy began a little after midnight on June 6, 1944. The initial bombing was done further inland to target bridges and railways to prevent German reinforcements from moving up. It wasn't until later, as the sky lightened in the east, that 1,500 U.S. Army Air Force bombers began to target the beaches. At Utah Beach and in the area around Catanton, 300 B-26 bombers cruised at an altitude so low that the crews said Germans could have thrown rocks at the pilot. These medium bombers wiped out their targets, especially on Utah Beach, and took no losses. I mean, technically, at any altitude, you can throw rocks at them. Stupid fucking pilots. I throw rocks at planes all the time. 
I'm just hoping I'm preventing the next 9-11. It's basically what I'm doing. You're a fucking hero. I am. You deserve nothing less than full honors. <laughs> the other bombing group, which was composed of B-17 Flying Fortresses and B-24 Liberators, targeted Omaha, Gold, and Sword Beaches and flew at a much higher altitude. They were above the cloud line and had no idea where their targets were. And since they knew their buddies were all down below them in boats, they were extra cautious and waited to drop their bombs. Which, as you could imagine, as a result, all their ordnance was dropped harmlessly onto French farms. Didn't touch the beaches. Just killed those French cows. They were saying, Le Mou, mm -hmm. up until the last moment. And made brie cheese. Yep, right out of their udders. Straight mm -hmm. out of it. Yeah, the uh, the beaches and defenses were completely spared, which, of course, would prove costly later that morning. At 6 a.m., the naval bombardment of the coast began. During this initial attack, the targets were known military batteries that sat behind the coast. Very few of the shells were fired towards beach defenses. At the same time, landing craft carrying men and tanks raced towards the coast. Minesweepers had attempted to clear the shoreline before the invasion began, but they were unaware that the Germans had placed jerry-rigged... Get it? Because they're jerrys. Germans and jerrys. <laughs> <laughs> They'd placed jerry-rigged mines on top of the beach barricades. Those minesweepers were just out there doing their job, and they hit that square, and it says eight. And they're like, oh, fuck, mm. boys, we got to get out of here. We got to get right the fuck out of here. I don't even know what right to do with this. right-click all around it. Yeah. Oh, shit. Marking those flags. They didn't know you could go find the text file and edit the, the high scores that way. There was actually kind of a cheat to where you can make it look like you had cleared all the mines in 12 seconds. But duh. An old Windows minesweeper. <laughs> the real heroes. That's right. Well, as the landing craft approached, they began to strike mines and sink, forcing the men to jump over the sides into the deep water. Several would drown from the sheer weight of the equipment they carried. Even more would abandon their weapons and gear altogether. You know, this is fight or flight, and they're they're choosing kind of flight at that point. Like, get me the fuck out of this water. And they had given them these life vests that could inflate, but once you're carrying 200 pounds of equipment, you got to ditch that shit and just get onto the beach and across it, you know, to safety. The plan was to have vehicles known as DD tanks land first, followed by Higgins' boats full of troops. DD tanks were basically Sherman tanks with propellers and giant canvas flotation devices around them. Yeah, more like giant boobs, am I right? Double Ds. Ah. All right, fellas. Am I right, guys? There we go. Yeah. Well, the DD tanks, they moved so slowly through the water that the Higgins boats blasted right past them. At 6.30 a.m., the first Allied forces landed on Utah Beach. They were actually a full kilometer south of where they were supposed to be, but that turned out to be a lucky break because that part of the beach was lightly defended and had been wrecked by B-26 Marauder bombing runs. Leading this wave and insisting he go ashore was Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt Jr. He was 56 years old and needed a cane to move around after having recently suffered a massive heart attack. He's so lucky he picked, or at least got selected, for Utah Beach. Can you imagine him like Kane walking across Omaha with all the crazy shit that was going to happen there? He'd be fucking dead before he hit the sand. He would have survived. Somehow, just slowly but surely, Kane walking. I don't know how to respond to that. Don't worry about it. 
because you're you're right and my point doesn't work because I'm just I'm arguing with my own fucking point I started with. You imagine me you at Omaha and say Utah, you would have died. Yeah, you would have died. Well, actually, you probably would have made it. You fucking goddamn idiot. <laughs> Second half, Chris. Second half, Chris. <laughs> Second half, Chris. <laughs> Well, Roosevelt, he and his men figured out that they had missed their landing, and he famously said, We'll start the war from right here. Utah Beach was mostly flat, with a few dunes and a seawall. The German resistance was light, and the U.S. was able to get across it and get their vehicles ashore with relative ease. At Utah, the American 4th Division would put ashore 20,000 troops and 1,700 vehicles, and would only suffer 187 total casualties. When it came to men in action, Ooh. hey, hey, Ooh, excuse me. <laughs> when it came to men killed in action, the fourth had actually lost 20 times more men in training accidents than they did on Utah Beach. At the same time, the scattered airborne troops were beginning to take out their objectives. Goddamn American hero, Lieutenant Richard Winters, led a hodgepodge group of paratroopers and took out four. Count them, four 105mm artillery guns at Braycor Manor. Another battery was taken out near Holdy, and the 506th Parachute Infantry Division of the 101st Airborne, they completed their objective by capturing and holding Saint-Marie-du-Mont, even though the paratroopers were greatly outnumbered, and hardly any of them were even from the same company as soldiers. These efforts were huge in making Utah Beach the safest landing zone in Normandy on D-Day. Just like old Richard Winters told Jimmy Fallon in Band of Brothers. We're paratroopers, Lieutenant. We're supposed to be surrounded. And then Jimmy Fallon laughed into the camera because, you know, it's Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> was Jimmy Fallon in Band, Band of Brothers? Brothers? He was, yeah. Fuck, I haven't seen it in so long. <laughs> Just slapping the hood of his Jeep. <laughs> <laughs> Can't keep a straight face. The director's eventually like, fuck it, leave it in. It's we'll make fine. it work. Let's <laughs> pretend he was drunk. I mean, Jimmy Fallon's always drunk, so it works. It, who cares? No one will question it. <laughs> the British experiences at gold and sword beaches at the opposite end of Normandy were very similar to those of the Americans at Utah. Those beaches had very little in the way of fortifications, with the Germans taking up positions in the villages further inland. The soldiers that did defend gold and sword were prominent members of the Osttruppen divisions meaning they were Russians and Poles who had absolutely zero desire to fight the Allied invaders, so they surrendered at the drop of a hat. That's not to imply that those beaches were a cakewalk. The English would lose about 1,000 men, but that was out of the 50,000 troops that landed there. It's a pretty good ratio. Right, you compare that to something like the Somme, where they lost 40,000 in a fucking day. That was a pretty good yeah. day for them, you know? Mm-hmm. Their goal for the day was to establish a beachhead and take the city of Caen, but they would be slowed by enough German resistance that they wouldn't make it to the city before dusk. It also didn't help that they insisted on stopping down for a full-on break at tea time. It's so crazy that that's a real thing. That feels like such a cartoon thing, like the clock strikes four, and it's like, stop it, shut down, tea. That's what we're doing right now, because I feel like... Growing up, that was the joke, but apparently it fucking happened in war. Mm-hmm. Like, ah, uh, we're making good progress, boys, but, uh, I don't know, four o'clock's four o'clock, am I right? Yeah. Imagine American soldier doing that. I'm taking my OSHA time. 
Right. Not that OSHA existed at this time. Maybe nor does the military have to follow it, but you can imagine. <laughs> Maybe at four twenty in Vietnam, they just stopped fighting Charlie in the trees. <laughs> four twenty blaze at time, guys. At Juno Beach, the Canadians faced stiffer resistance than what the Brits saw at Golden Sword and the U.S. saw at Utah. Machine guns and artillery were set up to defend the beach, and the aerial bombardment had done jack shit to wipe it out. The Canadians were able to land with relative ease, but crossing the beach was a much more difficult task. But the Canadians were incredibly motivated to avenge their defeat at Dieppe and made their way across the seawall and took out the German positions. They were so determined to get across that in places where they lacked the explosives to destroy the barbed wire, men actually laid on top of it and acted as human bridges for their buddies. Some hardcore shit. Yeah, the Canadians are actually incredible fucking fighters. World War One, World War Two, man. Like, these are the hardest fighting motherfuckers in the war. It's all that pent-up aggression. <laughs> right? Every time they said sorry, it just added to their rage. Like, yeah. oh, that's another bullet for Jerry. The worst fighting, and perhaps the real story of D-Day, was what happened that morning on Omaha Beach. Omaha stretched out for about 10 kilometers. Upon landing, the sand gave way to a rocky shingle that sat at the base of a seawall. Beyond that was a minefield that led to rocky bluffs that overlooked the beaches, and they were full of German bunkers and emplacements. Trenches were dug into the slopes and on the ridge above the beach. There were five small ravines that sloped up to the ridge that were heavily mined and barricaded to prevent the Allies from driving up to the top. And the whole beach and landing area was surrounded by machine guns and artillery pieces. The Allies knew it was going to be a death trap, but if they didn't take it, there would be a 30-mile gap between Utah and Gold Beach, and the entire invasion would fail. Still, the Allies were convinced they could take it for four reasons. First, their intelligence told them that the beach was manned by an Austroopan division with very low morale. And again, that's the, the Russians and, and Poles and other Eastern Europeans. But that was actually false. It was defended by battle-hardened Germans of the 352nd Division. Second, they were told that the B-17s would wreck the beaches in defensive emplacements. Like we said, they missed and hit a bunch of empty farms. Third, they were told the naval bombardment would take out the rest of the defenses, but they mostly targeted positions past the beach. The final reason they believed they could take Omaha Beach was that they were going to overwhelm it with a ridiculous number of men and vehicles. That would wind up being true, but at a great cost. The Higgins boats that were transporting the troops to shore all ran into sandbars that were 50 to 100 yards away from the shore. The first boat to do so was from Company A of the 116th Regiment. As soon as their ramp was lowered, the boat exploded, either from a mine or from a direct hit from a German 88 artillery gun. The 88 stand for HH, which is Heil Hitler. <laughs> Stupid. The rest of Company A didn't fare much better. As the ramps to their boats were lowered, they fell into water that was at least waist-deep and neck-deep in some places. German machine guns and artillery instantly tore them to shreds. Of the 200 men of Company A, only a couple dozen would survive the landing, and even then, those men were wounded. That's so fucking crazy. You spend all these years training for this, and as soon as the ramp drops, you're fucking dead. And that kind of shatters the illusion that I think a lot of people have, like they picture themselves in war, and they're always going to be the fucking hero, the guy who survives. 
And it's just dumb fucking luck. You can't, like, you're just that, you could be the biggest badass in the world, and you're the front dude on that boat, and the ramp drops, and a machine gun, MG-42 rips your fucking face off immediately. End of war, end of your life. Thank you for participating. Oh, yeah. And especially an MG-42. That was by far the best machine gun in the entire war. Yeah. Because they can make a million of them because they were all just stamped metal so they could mass produce them. And they fired like 1,200 rounds a minute, I think, compared to like the U.S. and, and British machine guns at like 500 rounds a minute or something yeah. like that. It was insane the amount of rounds that they could put on target. And their barrels, you can change them in like five seconds. Like literally five seconds, you could change a barrel. Yeah, the U.S. was using the Browning machine guns, which you can see in media, but if you read about it, they overheat super fast, they shoot super slow, they're heavier, they're, they're shooting a thirty cal or a fifty cal round, but at the same time, you're not getting nearly as much firepower across the distance as you would with that MG-42. It was, and it was top-tier, elite-level weapon in the war. Yeah, I mean, a lot of their weapons were, you know, from that to the Stormgewehr, I mean, they just... They were really, really solid on their weaponry. And as you talked about, like movies and video games, they depict the scenes at Omaha with men sprinting up the beach to find cover while they dodge artillery and gunfire. But in reality, the men slowly trudged through the tide, weighed down by all their equipment and the water holding them back. The coast was littered with dead bodies, as well as men pretending to be dead, who hoped the waves would push them towards the shoreline. As the tide rose, it concealed barricades and mines. Because of this, the landing craft carrying tanks began hitting mines and sinking. The coxswains of other landing craft, <laughs> they began getting nervous and lowered their ramps way too soon and ordered the tanks and jeeps to drive off. They'd immediately plummet to the bottom of the ocean and the crews would have to be rescued or swim to the shore and thusly became infantry instead of, you know, operating mobile units. It's so crazy because you read about this and one would fall off the ramp disappear, the crew would come up, the next one would just follow right fucking behind it. Like, they expect something different to happen, you know? And it's because that's what their orders were to do. Just keep going. Just go towards the beach. And well, they, they knew they were sitting ducks otherwise. Yeah. it was. There was so much equipment just lost before they even made it to the, the shore of Omaha Beach. Yeah. It, uh, it was a slaughter. Men of the 116th and 16th Divisions were making it on shore, but... They were taking ridiculous casualties. The German MG-42s ripped them to shreds. The 88 guns made quick work of any tanks or trucks that actually made it ashore. The soldiers found relative safety once they made it to the seawall covered in barbed wire, but they sheltered there and were hesitant to move on. All along the seawall, medics attempted to save lives, but knew evacuation was impossible, so they could only give men morphine and hope it eased their pain as they bled out through their lost limbs. Additional waves of soldiers and equipment kept coming, causing a traffic jam along the shoreline that became a giant target of opportunity for the Germans. They continued to massacre U.S. troops before they could even make it off their landing craft. At 8.30 in the morning, only two hours after it began, the Navy called off all further landings and ordered the ships to return to a safe distance, which caused only more chaos and destruction as they struggled to turn around 2,000 ships all at once. <clears throat> Almost fucking done. I know. There's not a lot of jokes in Omaha. Guys are getting torn up by machine guns. Here's my penis hey, joke. 
Full of holes, just like your mom. Bang, 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 dad. <laughs> and my uncle. Yes, yes. He filled my holes. Uh. <laughs> it's like eight jokes in one. I made a lot of jokes seeing Saving Private Ryan. They asked me to leave the theater because I was making a bunch of old men cry. <laughs> Mostly because I was threatening to testify against them, but also because some of them served. If Rommel was right and the Germans were going to repel the Allies back into the sea and cause the complete failure of the D-Day invasion, Omaha was where it was going to happen. But it was here that the difference between the German and American armies became evident. German soldiers were extremely regimented and always under strict orders to stick to the plan, even if it was disastrous. No one fucking tells Americans what to do. You guys know that. I know it. Everybody knows it. As a result... Various leaders began to reassure and reorganize the men. They brought up wire cutters and long explosive torpedoes to take out the barbed wire that sat on top of the seawall. They were called Bangalores from the movie Hook. Pita? <laughs> they walked up and down the lines and ordered men to get over the wall and up the cliffs. General George Taylor said it best when he said, There are only two kinds of people on this beach, the dead and those about to die. So let's get the hell out of here. At the same time the men were beginning to cross the seawall, clear the mines, and actually attack the German positions, the Navy began to do their own improvising. They were under orders not to fire at the beach while the troops were attacking it. At 9.50 a.m., Admiral C.F. Bryant said fuck that and ordered his destroyers to start targeting German bunkers. If they saw firing at the position, they fired at it too. The men on the ground slowly began moving up, taking out bunkers and emplacements, and clearing the path for vehicles. Elite units of army rangers used grapple hooks and ropes to scale sheer cliffs and flank the Germans at Pointe du Oc, which sat at the end of the beach. Yeah, a lot of these guys said as they were going up the beach, they could hear the shells going over them, and it sounded like a freight train. Like this giant fucking shell the size of a jeep is smashing into the beach. Choo choo. <laughs> but there Did were you hear some. That? <laughs> what was that? It's fucking Thomas the train just busts out of the side <laughs> of the cliff. What's up, motherfuckers? <laughs> He's clearly got cocaine residue coming out of his little front nose area. <laughs> Holy shit. Jesus Christ, I did not see that coming. <laughs> He completely interrupted Chris's point, like, out of nowhere. That's a fucking psycho train. <laughs> Choo-choo, motherfuckers. <laughs> just Nazis flying through the air. He's just <laughs> laughing hysterically. You look in his, in, inside the compartment of the engine, and there's Winnie the Pooh just screaming for blood. It's like, yeah! <laughs> Nazi blood for the forest! Nazi blood for the forest. Um, what what were we saying, Chris? Uh, well, nothing. I was just going to turn that into a "God bless the USA" joke about how that's what they heard when the shells were going over. But I think it is hey, "God bless the USA." <laughs> I know. <laughs> Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> so stupid. Especially since I think in our uh, Gallipoli episode, Winnie the Pooh was a fucking German. Like, just raining down artillery on the beaches. <laughs> he doesn't agree with the Nazi ideology. He switched sides. Yeah, he's one of the, the OGs. He, he was actually a mastermind of Operation Valkyrie, the attempt on <laughs> Hitler's life from inside the German military organization. So, 
We, yeah. Our story is congruous. Yeah. Under the table, Piglet's just shoving that fucking briefcase. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna get this motherfucker, Pooh. <laughs> yeah. Eeyore's sitting at the table giving Hitler bad news about the Ostfront. He's like, oh. But he's, he's stalling on purpose. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not going so good, mine fewer. <laughs> We're losing troops in uh, Army Group A and Army Group... Get to the point! Yeah. Tigger's just bouncing around the room high as fuck on meth. <laughs> as usual. T-I-double-G-R. Shut the fuck up! You can't say that word anymore! Oh, you said T. Oh, my bad. My bad. God. God. <laughs> Christopher Robbins just sitting there. He's actually, he knows about the assassination attempt, but he's not even paying attention. He's thinking of girls, you know, because he's not still a boy, but not quite a man. <laughs> you know? Yeah. He's got his little discovery, that interesting time in your life. Yeah, he's he's even a little undecided. He's sitting there in his brown shirt, Hitler Youth uniform, playing with his official Hitler pocket knife. He's like, oh, it's a pretty sweet knife. I mean, he's done some horrible things, but uh, this knife is pretty fucking awesome. Have you seen this knife? <laughs> Where was I? Who cares? Bunch of people died. Ah, <laughs> uh, Yes. As the day wore on and the characters from the Hundred Acre Wood continued their assassination plot on Hitler <laughs> on a completely different date, actually. Um, the rest of that is factually true. The Americans were able to take the beach at the cost of 6,000 casualties, including 2,500 dead soldiers. You're just laughing your ass off, you piece of shit. Why are you saying that to me? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Somebody has to be the bad guy. I don't want to be the bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> the Americans had also planned on taking the villages behind Omaha, but found that the Germans were too dug in behind huge hedgerows that sat on top of 12-foot mounds, and instead they had to settle in for the night. Yeah, so crazy, this part, because they thought they could just go through these bushes, because the English have hedgerows too, but they sit, like, basically ground level, and it works as a fence. You have, like, these bushes... But these guys, like the French, had built these massive 12-foot embankments, bushes on top, which allowed the Germans to dig inside those banks and put MG42s inside them. And there's only like one opening that leads into these fields. And none of the reconnaissance had revealed that. They thought it was going to be similar to England. So they kept walking into these basically kill zones of Germans just sitting there waiting for them to come through the gate and get killed. Well, right, because the reconnaissance was all... Airborne pictures. Yeah. And so the hedgerows look the exact same as the ones that are ground level. Yeah. Just... But most of them were ground level, but they did have a lot of these as well to where, like, a lot of it they could move through. And yeah. so it almost developed this false sense of security, and then boom, you know? Yeah. In the weeks coming, they would learn that you just throw white phosphorus onto the thing, let it burn, send a tank through, and the tank cleans up the mess. But that would really Pete. What's going to happen on uh, D-Day? That's what you call white phosphorus, Chris. I did not know that. Willie Pete. WP, dog. That's what I call my two penises. That is a loaded comment. <laughs> that is a very loaded comment. 
Uh, also a war crime by today's standards. Well, live and learn, Greg. Live and learn. Just like the flamethrowers. Geneva Convention, born of World War II. Elon Musk will sell you one, though. Not used to kill humans. <laughs> okay. Whatever. This is fucking America, but whatever. Second Amendment and all that. That's true. We're probably going to have one rampage through a school in no time. God. Way to bring the room down, Greg. The German counterattack that Rommel, that old desert fox, had hoped for, it never really materialized. Hitler had control of the tank units, and his aide refused to wake him on D-Day to ask if they should mobilize. Hitler slept until noon that morning. What? But by then it was too late. Don't you hate that, like, when you were a kid and it was summertime and you woke up and it was like 11.15, you're like, God damn it, I missed the prices right. You know all the things on at soap operas and news and reruns of Annie Griffith and I just want to kill myself. Don't you remember those glory days yeah, of being a teacher? they were awful. <laughs> Before cable television was real prominent. I mean, even if you had it in the house, you didn't have it in your room. You right. Know? DVRs weren't a thing. You couldn't just go on YouTube and watch a bunch of fucking... 14-year-olds play video games and scream at the top of their lungs and laugh your ass off? No. The good old days. Yeah, my ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, when Hitler did wake up, he pretended to be giddy because the invasion had begun, and now he could finally wipe out the Brits and Americans. But in a matter of weeks, the Allies would control the entire French coast, and they'd be looking to knock the piss out of Hitler and the Nazis. Could they do it? We'll tell you some other time. But for now, end of story. Woo! We did it. Told the story of D-Day. No one thought it was possible. They said, no, man, you can't just sit down and talk about D-Day and tell people what happened. That's, that's bullshit. No one can do that. And then here we come, man, just strutting up, you know, some Bee Gees playing. You can tell by the way I use my welcome walls, man. And here we come, man, just pimping out those suits and telling you the story. Yes. <laughs> and that's what heroes do. But <laughs> heroes also tell you most of the story and then leave out like four things because they want you to keep listening. And we like to call those things the fast facts. Fast fact number one. In addition to the typical rifle that a soldier would carry, the paratroopers of the 81st and 101st Airborne carried extra grenades, trenching tools, compasses, escape kits, knives, flares, rope, flashlights, extra ammunition, rations, cigarettes, and lighters. One soldier, who also had to carry a radio beacon, noted that he weighed 127 pounds naked, how did he know that, but 320 pounds with all of his gear. Most of this extra equipment was lost on the jump into Normandy. Fast fact number two. Winston Churchill wanted to land on the beach and join the troops, just like Teddy Roosevelt Jr. Eisenhower told Churchill no, but Churchill said Eisenhower couldn't do shit about it. Ike then went to King George, who told Churchill, if he's going to go, so is the king. Afraid of risking the king of England? Churchill backed down. And, uh, side note, Teddy Roosevelt Jr. would die of a heart attack only one month after D-Day, which was only one month after he had his previous heart attack. <laughs> yeah. 
Maybe war is not the best situation for a guy with heart problems. I don't know. Fast fact number three. One of the paratroopers killed on D-Day was Sergeant Bob Nyland. One of his brothers, a platoon leader in the 4th Division, was killed that morning on Utah Beach, and a third brother was killed in the Pacific that same week. Their mother received all three telegrams this same day. Her fourth son, Fritz Nyland, was in the 101st Airborne and was promptly removed from duty. This was the basis of the movie Saving Private Ryan, although in real life it was far less dramatic and no one killed Tom Hanks. Spoiler. Fast fact number four. One of the first men to convince the troops to clear off of Omaha was General Norman Cota, who was also the highest-ranking member of the U.S. military to land at Omaha Beach. Not only did he personally lead men over the seawall, he also went up and down it, encouraging them to do the same. When he came across a platoon of men from the 5th Rangers Division, he told them his plan and said, Rangers, lead the way, which became and remains the motto of the U.S. Army Rangers to this day. All right. We thank you guys for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you learned something, man. D-Day is such a crazy victory for the Allies, and just reading about it and talking about it, it kind of gives you that, that feeling of pride. Like anything can be accomplished if we just believe in ourselves. Well, good. It's Pride Month. It is Pride Month, and I believe in you, listener. And I believe you are going to go to social media and follow at 100 Proof History. Instagram, Facebook, we do it all. Twitter, not so much because Twitter makes me sad as a person. I also believe that you, the super fan, the best listeners, will go to 100proofhistory.com, look at our bios, laugh your ass off, and then subscribe to the Patreon for just $3 a month. You get access to old episodes, a whole bunch of bonus content, early access to new episodes. It's well worth it. It's well worth your time. It's been worth our time. We've really enjoyed making that stuff for you guys, and we hope that it's been good for you. But you won't know unless you give us that three bucks. And also, last thing I promise, check out hunterproofhistory.com slash audible if you want to listen to the books we talk about. We read a book for every episode, at least one book. We dedicate ourselves to researching this stuff, but you guys can just put it in your ear holes, listen to it on the way to work, listen to it while you're working out, Pick up a few little things that maybe we didn't mention. Uh, you know, just learn more about the things we talk about. It's all good. We love you. We hope you check it out. We hope you support the show because we are desperate for your love and attention. I am your sexy co-host Christopher. For our editor, our producer, our board op, everything, Wolf Dick, the Invalid, the Gimp, and for Dan Dan, the intro man, we say thank you for listening, and we ask main host, sexy, mustachioed, man of mystery host, Gregory, what else? So long, farewell, Alfita shun goodbye. Sound of music? No? Oh, you fucking Nazi. <gasps> How dare you? <laughs> goodbye. Adios. Jesus, fuck, Rosie. We don't have time for this, Rosie! She's freaking out, man. It's thundering out.
Stephen Ambrose. Bullshit. Fucking clear shit. And this spot was also the spot Hitler chose to defend with the most fortifications and tanks. <laughs> Tank S. Tank S. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Tank S. <laughs> this spot <laughs> was the spot Hitler chose to defend the most fortifications and tank. They just put one tank Just there. one fucking tank. <laughs> we got this, boys. <laughs> now the other fucking dog's up here. Killed them. And kept them from wiping out the vulnerable paratroopers. As seen in the hit HBO series... Six Feet Under. Sorry, that's stupid. I'm an idiot. I want to kill myself. It's like, oh, I'm going to talk about Band of Brothers here, and then, I don't know. My brain doesn't work, and I hate myself, and nothing I've ever done is good. Okay. <clears throat> I don't understand what's going on. Don't worry about it. Moving on to the last point before the break. I got caught with cocaine and betrayed everybody I love so I can keep my comedy career alive. 